Well, this morning and in the days to come, we get to continue to celebrate the birth of a baby, a baby whose life would change everything. But this baby's life and birth did not happen in a vacuum. It was deeply connected to the biblical story leading up to this point. Jesus was a Jewish boy born to Jewish parents who had an Israelite heritage. And it's important to keep this in mind because the writers of Jesus's life desire us to see just how connected his birth was to that entire biblical story leading up to this amazing moment 2,000 years ago. Jesus is born in the little town of Bethlehem, about six miles southwest of Jerusalem, and probably looks something similar to this village outside of Bethlehem today would have looked back then. Bethlehem today is huge, but when Jesus was born, it was just a small village. Now, it is Luke who wrote a biography on the life of Jesus who tells us that after Jesus has been born, it is the shepherds who come and visit him. But it it is Matthew who also writes a biography on Jesus' life who tells us what happens after the shepherds left, namely the arrival of the Magi. And so the Magi have come from afar bearing their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And then after leaving, this is what Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 2. When they, talking about the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Okay, let's hold it for a moment. If you know anything about Herod the Great, you would know that the dude would have been served well to enter into some anger management classes. Okay, this guy who was ruling and governing the Jewish people on behalf of the Roman Empire at this point because they were ruling the world had this amazingly scary temper. So it doesn't surprise us at all as a result of how furious he is that he does what's next. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Did you catch that? That in the reading of that story, what's going on? Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are fleeing for their lives from the terror, oppression, and violence of Herod the Great. (laughs) You know what that makes them, don't you? It makes them a refugee. They are refugees. The early stages of Jesus' life is one of a refugee. I mean, the entire Christmas story is grounded in a refugee reality. And in the midst of these horrific circumstances, where does God send them? He sends them to Egypt. 
Now, if you know anything about Egypt in the biblical story, you will know right away Egypt is loaded with significance. The foundation of the Israelite nation is connected to Egypt. And it began at the end of the first chapter, or excuse me, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, at the very end with a guy by the name of Jacob. Now, Jacob is the third Israelite patriarch. And he and his extended family of 70 are living in what's known as the land of Canaan, which will be later called the land of Israel. And because of famine in the land, they have to flee to Egypt. And because anyone who has to flee from their home due to famine or other natural disasters is by definition a refugee, they flee to Egypt. And they arrive with their caravan in the land of Egypt looking for help. And amazingly, one of Jacob's sons, a guy by the name of Joseph, you will know him as the guy with the coat of many colors, ends up second in command in Egypt at this time. And what Joseph does is Joseph takes in his father and the extended family and resettles them in the northern part of Egypt in the Nile Delta on the east side in a place known as Goshen, as beautiful today as it was back then. And Joseph resettles the extended family and gives them a new home. Well, over time, this extended family morphs into a nation and a pharaoh comes to the throne and becomes very suspicious of the Israelite people to the point that he enslaves them and unleashes upon them terror, oppression, and violence, most notably seen with the killing of all the baby boys surrounding the birth of Moses just as Herod the Great will do surrounding the birth of Jesus. And God, through the mighty acts of the 10 plagues and with the miraculous event at the Red Sea, enables the Israelites to flee from Egypt. And because they are fleeing from terror, oppression, and violence, they are once again refugees. Now, interestingly, later on, God will remind the Israelites what their relationship is to be with Egypt after they leave. Notice what God says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. You shall never return that way again. Namely, God says, after they've left Egypt, I don't want my people ever going back to Egypt again. And then God brings them to a place called Mount Sinai and he gives them an identity and he gives them a mission. And for the next 40 years, they will spend in the desert with Moses at the helm. But Moses will die and leadership will transfer to a guy by the name of Joshua and he will lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan in what is known as the conquest. And then there'll be a period known as the judges followed by the monarchy with King Saul, King David, King Solomon. King Solomon will die and the kingdom will divide. And in the north you'll have Israel and the southern kingdom will be called Judah. About 722 BC, more than 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Assyria is sitting on the world throne and they come in and they take out the northern kingdom. And you don't hear from them again. 
And about 150 years later, the empire that's on the world throne is Babylon. And they come in and they take out the southern kingdom. And they begin deporting the Israelites to Babylon. And the most well-known prophet at this time is a guy by the name of Jeremiah. And as the Israelites are being deported to Babylon, Jeremiah, who is in Jerusalem at this point, is forced to go to none other than Egypt. And he goes as a political refugee. Now, he goes to Egypt. Didn't God say back in Deuteronomy, you shall never return that way again? Why does Jeremiah go there? Well, he's actually forced to go there, but he goes there nonetheless. And it begs the question, why did God originally say this in the first place? Why is God so adamant that after they leave Egypt, they never return there again? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. You see, when God rescued and redeemed the people out of their slavery in Egypt, he brought them to a good land. And if they were ever exiled from that good land, it would indicate that they were enslaved again. And that everything that had been accomplished in the Exodus would have been reversed. Most notably, if they end up in Egypt again. You see, Jeremiah going to Egypt embodies Israel's reality at this moment that they are once again enslaved. And they're enslaved to Babylon. But then that slavery will be passed on to the Persians who will rule over them and it'll be passed on then to the Greeks who will rule over them. And by the time Jesus is born, it is the Romans who are ruling over Israel and they are still enslaved. And at the birth of Jesus and when Herod wants to kill him, God says to Mary and Joseph, take the boy and I want you to go to Egypt. <laughs> we go, why? God, why did you send them to Egypt. Well, there are practical reasons for this. Namely, they're refugees. They have to go somewhere, and Egypt is the closest region outside of the jurisdiction of Herod the Great. What's more is that beginning in the time that Jeremiah went there, 600 years before the time of Jesus, Egypt became a haven for political Jewish refugees. And there were Jewish centers all over Egypt at this time. We don't know where Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went in Egypt, but if they ended up in a place like Alexandria, this was one of the four largest cities in the ancient world at this time. Roughly a million people were in Alexandria, and scholars estimate one-third of that population was Jewish. So it would have been easy to get lost in the shuffle. But Matthew isn't interested in telling us about the practical reasons they went. Matthew is interested in telling us the prophetic reason why God sent them there. Notice again, Matthew 2, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, is a direct quote from the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11, verse one. 
And if you were to go to Hosea 11 and start reading the chapter, you would quickly realize this chapter has nothing to do with Jesus at all. It has everything to do with Israel. God calls Israel his son. And by the way, this isn't the first time God has done this. God also did this first and foremost in Exodus chapter four, right before God rescued and redeemed Israel from their slavery, he called Israel his firstborn son. And yet, Matthew here in chapter two says, out of Egypt I called my son. This is talking about Jesus. And you have to scratch your head and you have to ask, did Matthew make a mistake here? Is he confused? Is this about Israel or is it about Jesus? And for Matthew, the answer is yes. <laughs> it's about both. Because for Matthew, Jesus is the greatest expression of who Israel was called to be in the world. And what's more, Jesus came out of Israel. You see, what Matthew is helping us to see is that Jesus is reliving Israel's story. That the story of Jesus is going to be on the canvas of the Exodus. And that Jesus coming out of Egypt symbolizes that he is leading a new Exodus. But what kind of an Exodus is this? Well, Matthew gives us that as well. See, in Matthew chapter one, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and fills him in on what's going on because Joseph doesn't have a clue what's going on. And the angel says to Joseph, with respect to Mary, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. That's it. The issue for Jesus is sin. It's their sin. It's our sin. It's our faults, our failures, the many ways that we've blown it. And as Jesus' disciple John will later tell us in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Well, what's the devil's work? It's the continuation of the controlling power of sin in the world and in our lives. You see, this is why the Exodus had been reversed. It's because Israel had been fighting a losing battle against the controlling power of sin. And this is why God sends Jesus to Egypt is to relive the story. You see, Jesus didn't come to deal with the Romans. Jesus came to deal with a much bigger enemy. Jesus didn't come to set the Jewish people free from their slavery to a nation. Jesus came to set all of humanity free from their slavery to sin and its controlling power in our lives. Jesus is indeed leading a new exodus. And it's not just an exodus for the Jewish people. It's an exodus for the whole world. Because Jesus is not only reliving Israel's refugee story as a refugee himself. He is also reliving our refugee story as well. Well, he's got 
the whole world in his hands, but it certainly didn't look like that in the beginning. Jesus' life, we've just heard, began as a refugee. And by God guiding him into Egypt, he was about to relive Israel's story. But this wasn't for Israel alone. We're told this was for the entire human race. You see, we're all refugees. Now, I'm sure some of you may hear that and ask, how am I a refugee? Well, in the physical sense of the term, I'm sure we can all thank God that that is not true for us. But his mission was not to free Israel from slavery to Rome, but to free the human race from slavery to the controlling power of sin. Jesus' exodus was designed to free people from that tyrannical power that controls their thoughts, their actions, their emotions. That thing that prevents us from overcoming those hurts, those habits, those hang-ups that have held us captive for years. All this is a consequence of what the Bible calls sin. Jesus left Egypt in order to lead the human race to freedom, to hope, and to life. Sin is a problem for the human race, you see, because the Bible tells us that sin is inherent to the human race. Sin is a power that rules. And because sin rules, death reigns. Sin is a power that stands in opposition to God. So whereas God brings freedom, hope, and life, sin brings slavery, despondency, and death. Sin is a problem because sin is inherent to the human condition. To help you understand this, look at Psalm 51 and verse 5. Surely, the psalmist says, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, sin is inherent. From the time we were born, we have lived under sin's tyrannical rule. And so the line of sin doesn't run through Egyptian hearts or even Roman hearts for that matter. Sin runs through every human heart. Sin is inherent to the human condition. Not only does the Bible tell us that sin is inherent, it uses another word that tells us that sin is also imputed. This word imputed is a word that is used in financial and legal environments. It basically means to take something that belongs to someone and to charge it to someone else's account. Imputation. To help you understand this word, look at this scripture that the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. To be sure, Paul says, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. 
Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. Do you see the way these two words work together, inherent and imputed? Sin was inherent in the world even before the world knew what right and wrong was, even before the law was given. So in other words, from the time we were born, sin ruled. And because sin ruled, death reigned. In the time of Jesus, death reigned. Not King Herod, not Caesar Augustus, death reigned. And because death reigned, sin ruled. This is the the context for the Christmas story. One day, we will all die. Not because we have broken God's law, not because we didn't listen to mom and floss our teeth before we went to bed, not because we've disobeyed something or someone in authority over us, but because death is a natural consequence for those people who live under sin's rule. This is the background to those words of the angel. In Matthew chapter 1, the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, Mary is going to conceive. And she is going to conceive a child, a boy, by the Holy Spirit, not of human seed. And you are to give him the name Jesus, which means God's salvation, because he will save his people from their sins. Do you understand sin a little bit better now? Inherent in the human condition, imputed, charged to our account because we know what right and wrong is. But that's the important component of Christmas with the virgin birth. You see, Jesus was born of a virgin to make sure that the sin inherent in the human condition was not inherent in him. When Jesus was born, he did not live under sin's rule because sin had no hold over him. He did not live under death's reign because death could not hold him like it does us. And so that day when he died on the cross, he did not die for his sin because in him no sin was found. He died for the sins of the whole world. You see, it's in this sense, we're all refugees. We are running from a tyrannical ruler called sin that hovers over us in so many ways. We experience that by the inability to overcome those things that hold us back. We experience that as our days draw to a close and we wonder and we fear what lies beyond death. And because sin rules and death reigns, this sin will not stop at the murder of infants and toddlers in Bethlehem. It will not stop until death conquers us all. And this, my friends, is the wonder of Christmas. Because that day when Jesus died and breathed his last, in that moment, the power of sin was broken once and for all. In that moment, death 
was vanquished. It was conquered. When he arose from the grave, death had no hold on him, and he can have no hold on us. There is life. There is hope. There is freedom through Jesus. This is the Christmas story. It's all about sin. All about how God overcomes it. You know, it really doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, what you've done or haven't done, how rich you are, how poor you are, whether you are male or female, black or white, Asian or Latino. We've had everything on the stage this morning. It does, that, none of this matters. What matters is you know what Jesus did for you. You know what the real gift of Christmas is. It's the gift of a child who when he was born on that holy night changed everything. We can be free. And so this holy night, from the famous to the faceless, God offers us all the opportunity to come home. Emmanuel, God is with us. That's what that means. The Word of God says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And God inhabits, dwells, anoints that place where he is praised and a symphony of praise from the sights and the sounds and what we have heard this night has a grander purpose, a greater significance because tonight the question this day is, the question is, what about you? What does this mean for you up in the last row of the balcony? What does this mean for you as a person who's lost a job? What does this mean for you that's searching for purpose? You have everything, and yet you know your life is not defined by stuff and things, and something is missing. On the outside, your resume looks good, but on the inside, you're dying when your head hits the pillow, and no one's around but the darkness, and you and God, you know. You know about this God that is with us, but the question is that we want to help you with now is God in me. Not the plural, not the group, not the corporate, but you. God in you. Joseph gives us a little direction, so for a moment we, we step back for 2,000 years and we look at his life because there's some things about the then and the now that connects and is real. He was in a dilemma. His soon-to-be wife had conceived, thinking the reputation is done. They're in an unbelievable dilemma socially and personally and maybe even in a spiritual sense wondering, I, I know what the angel told me, but I don't understand. I'm confused. And you may be confused, and you may be struggling, you may be looking for that light that we sang about. But in just a moment, God is going to shrink the building, and the, the Holy Spirit of God that is in this room is going to come to you 
and he's going to sit right next to you in that pew, Dad, Mom. And you see, we don't care whether you go to church or not. We don't care whether you're Westland, Baptist, Pentecostal, whatever. It doesn't matter because it's about Emmanuel coming in you now, today, in just a few moments. The Word of God says that Joseph had a dream. Did you know that four times in the Word of God, God spoke to him through a dream? He spoke to him through the voice of an angel. And I I wonder, as you're here today, how many times has God gone out of his way and his divine design only as God can do? How many times has he spoke to you through the voice of your wife? to the voice of your own children who've made a decision to say yes to Christ and you've seen something different in your son, your daughter, or maybe that neighbor or that friend that you work with. You see a joy, you see a a peace, you see something that in your heart you're crying for that you want. What would you give today to be free? What would you give today to wake up tomorrow and really look forward to it because now you're forgiven. Now your life has been transformed, never again the same. You're not alone. God knew that, so he used this voice to speak. And he heard. But anytime there's hearing, whether it's through song or melody or praise or the spoken word, there is a sense of accountability God holds us to, so there's, there's movement to do something with what we've heard. So what happened in Joseph? He not only heard, but he had a choice to make. And you will have that same privileged opportunity to make that choice in a moment. He chose that when the angel said, it's okay what's happened, take Mary home. It's okay, receive Mary now. It's fine because God's in it. And you see, today is not about Mary, it's about the Savior. It's not about Mary, it's about the Messiah. It's not about head knowledge, it's about being transformed in your heart. But you have to do more than hear. The action is to obey, and that obedience says, I'm going to step out in faith, and I'm going to ask this incredible God that sent his son to be born of a virgin, then to die on a cross. Because you see, you were born a spiritual refugee. You may have grown up in Holland all your life. But you're a spiritual refugee because of what sin has done and destroyed us. And death awaits. And there's two deaths. There is physical death. But for the child of God that meets Christ, there's eternal life. And you don't have to experience the second death. So we take that step of obedience and we trust him by faith. And we ask and we receive as Joseph was told to receive Mary. Now you can come home today. You can be that different dad, that different mom. The plan and the perfect timing of God. God knew of the thousands of people that would be listening online and in this place. He designed, he custom designed this moment for you in this place. So hear his voice. And now by faith, ask, and I'm going to help you. It's not a preacher's prayer. It's not some religious recantation. It's just the expression of your heart, of what you've been waiting for, and what God has answered tonight to come home, 
to leave the isolation and the rejection and the wandering of being a spiritual refugee and embrace the Son of God. Become your Savior, your Lord. Let me just point you in that direction. Could I ask please that every head is bowed and every eye is closed all through this building as you are watching online. Listen with your heart so whether you're online or whether you're in this room and you'd like to call on the name of Christ that by faith for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be rescued, saved. Would you call out to God and pray this prayer, not the exact words, but the expression of your own heart as I just simply point you to him. Father, as I sit in this place today, I know I am a spiritual refugee. I know I have sinned against you. And even though I was born into sin, thank you that Jesus, the Son of God, died for me. He took my place on that cross. And Lord Jesus, save me. I ask you. I claim you as my Messiah, my Lord, my Savior. His heads are bowed just a moment longer. Whether you're in the farthest reaches of this room or right here in the front or behind me, if today, just a moment ago, childlike faith, you embraced him as your Savior and your Lord. You called out to him in your own words and you said, Jesus, save me. If you did, would you do something, please? Would you mind right now? all over this room if you prayed said yes Jesus rescue me save me if you did your words or my words or whatever would you lift your head up and look at me right now all over this room bless you now his promise is good for you forever welcome home welcome home